Listeners, our hearts are breaking. Our hearts are breaking for all of Vermont's Black students, Black educators, and Black families. But frankly, our broken hearts are not nearly enough. Right now, we need to talk about what this all means for Vermont, what it means to interrogate white supremacy in our schools and in our classrooms and in ourselves. On this episode of the podcast, we grapple with a challenging short story by Hemingway. Yes, that Hemingway, called Indian Camp. Now, a content note. This story contains language and attitudes that we as a society no longer find acceptable. And in fact, one of the terms that Hemingway's characters bandy about, a derogatory term for Native and Indigenous women, we just won't be saying on this show. But... Given that this is a story that's primarily about the experiences of a young white boy and how the death and injury of Native people reaffirms his view of himself as entitled, why does Vermont Principal Elijah Hawks use it every year in welcoming new educators to his school? Because that young white boy and the people he injures with his entitlement, they're in your classrooms, in your communities, and in your homes. This remains Vermont Ed Reed's Black Lives Matter. Now let's chat. I'm Jeannie Phillips and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We are here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today I'm with Elijah Hawks and we'll be talking about the short story Indian Camp by Ernest Hemingway. Thanks for joining me, Elijah. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi Jeannie, thanks. Thanks for having me for this conversation. I'm currently um, principal at Randolph Union, a seven through 12 school in central Vermont that serves three towns and a bunch of others in the surrounding county, uh, Randolph, Brookfield and Braintree. Um, it's about 400 students at the school. We are adjacent to the Randolph Technical and Career Center and all of the benefits that come with that, um, with that neighborhood. And uh, I live in Middlesex, Vermont. I grew up in Moortown, Vermont, about 20 minutes away. Um, began my career as an educator though in, in New York City and was an English teacher and then founding principal of the James Baldwin School, a small um, alternative public school for transfer students who are, who are struggling in the upper grades of high school and then uh, moved to Vermont about nine or ten years ago and have been, have been here and in this role and in this, in this place uh, ever since. Um, thank you for that. Uh, you're also a writer. Yes, I'm also a writer. Do you want to talk at all about that? Well, sure. Um, like conversations like these, um, writing is a conversation with myself and with other people and with ideas. And it, uh, it's, it's one of the ways that I, um, it's one of the ways that I digest the, the, the work of being an educator, um, the work of being an educator in public schools, the work of being a public school educator in a democracy, the work of being an educator with adolescents, um, the work of being an educator as a father who has children. I, I, I pour that into my writing and try to make sense of the world um, that I'm in. And, um, and then when I can, try to share that with others and, and have further dialogue about it. Just, just got a book out actually this past month the book launch parties have been few since <laughs> social distancing, um, but I'm excited to share that with people as well. It's called School for the Age of Upheaval, and um, the subtitle is Classrooms That Get 
personal, get political, and get to work. And uh, perhaps there'll be some intersections um, with those ideas in our conversation today. I don't know, we'll see. I'm ready to get to work. Um, let's see. Well, one of the things I always like to ask um, folks, because I'm a, a librarian and an avid reader, and I'm always interested in what other people are reading. Do you have something on your on your nightstand right now that you're? I do. On? Yeah, I'm just um, 20 or 30 pages away from the end of The Water Dancer by Tanisi Coates. Um, my brother's reading it at the same time. We've been having some correspondence about it. Um, so I've been enjoying that novel by, by Coates, uh, whose essays, of course, I've, I've read in, in other publications, but um, this is his, uh, his first long work of fiction. I loved that book so much. <laughs> yeah, I, um, it'd be interesting to pair that with, I don't know if you saw the announcement yesterday, but uh, Colson Whitehead won um, the, the Pulitzer for fiction for Nickel Boys, which is another just phenomenal sort of historical fiction take. Um, I didn't know about that. But uh, I really love The Water Dancer. Actually, it's come up a lot with people who I've had on the podcast. They're either reading it, hoping to read it, suggesting it to me, suggesting it to others. So um, great. So I want to start um, I know I have a list of questions that I sent you that were in progress, but I just want to start with why um, why you chose this text, why you chose Indian Camp. That's actually it's actually a text that I've used as a jumping off point for professional development discussions about the purpose of our work and how we do our work. Uh, and it's a short story by Ernest Hemingway called Indian Camp. Um, so I, I thought, well, I've got that story at home, Jeannie. Why, why don't we talk about that and see where it takes us in terms of conversations about our, our work as educators? Um, I, I, it's not about school, but it's about uh, a child. It's about children and the families that they live in. And, um, and they come, they live in a divided society. They live in, in the United States uh, at the turn of the last century, somewhere in, um, upper northern Michigan and it's a Native American family and it's an Anglo-American family and they cross paths in a fairly traumatic way um, and I think uh, well the question that I ask my colleagues and I ask myself is um, consider the consider the, the protagonist of the story the, the the boy Nick who's the son of a doctor and uh, and ask yourself if he was in your classrooms what what he would what he would need from you as an educator and what he would need from your school and then ask yourself the same question of the of the native american child that we meet in the story and what would that child need if he was in your in your classroom and and how is that similar or different to what the the son of the doctor needs and then the the other question is more about the purpose of schools in our society and the question is what does the society need the children to get from their schooling so let's set the stage for our listeners. Um, Nick is on vacation, I think. He's uh, fishing with his uncle and his father. His father's a doctor. And um, they're called in the middle of the night, I think, or the wee hours of the morning to this Indian camp. They have to get there by canoe. And when they arrive, um, as they're arriving, as they're traveling there, um, uh, Nick's father is telling him that this woman has been in labor for a couple of hours and um, or longer or sorry a couple of days you're right not a couple of hours <laughs> uh, and um, as they arrive there's all this sort of 
it's Hemingway, so it's sparse, but there's a bit of commentary on this, on the, the their the homestead, the, if you will, um, that I, I re that really jumped out of me at me about you know sort of the descriptions um, of place and of people. Uncle George is not very kind. He uses a racial slur mm -hmm. um, against a young um, Indian woman and. Um, and uh, and so it sort of sets this stage of these, as you said, I think these like two, the segregated worlds, this, these two separate worlds. Is there anything you would add to that? Well, you're right, it's, uh, it's, it's Hemingway. So, um, you know, um, short staccato sentences, um, kind of like uh, very observational. You have to do some work as a reader to try to intuit what people might be feeling or thinking beyond their surface phrases um, and uh, and you might even say the first page or two of the story are boring mm -hmm. and part of why I choose the story is is for that reason actually um, part I choose the story and, and and I've been using this this story mostly in the last five or ten years in my work with predominantly white educators like mm -hmm. myself um, and so one choosing Hemingway and two, choosing a story that starts off the way that it does, you know, kind of from the perspective of a child, um, very slowly moving across the lake in a deliberate and um, again, sort of banal fashion. Um, no one's gonna really have their defenses up. Mm -hmm. So we're about to have a conversation about race and class and violence and the country we live in. And I, want, I don't want people to be defensive as we enter into that conversation. And Hemingway actually allows me to do that um, um, with, uh, with, with a diverse audience or with an audience that includes mostly, mostly, mostly white um, educators, mostly white people. So part of the reason why I like the stories is that, that's, is that slow entry into content that is, um, that, is, that is very important and troubling. What that makes me think of is the slow way in which we are enculturated around race too. Like that, you know, Nick is this five or six year old kid, maybe seven. Um, and he's sort of picking up all these quiet messages about difference, right? And who matters and what's important. Absolutely. And, um, and I think about that's, that's our lived experience in the United States. Um, uh, living in this highly racialized society that doesn't really talk about race, right? Like we slowly accumulate um, as children all these ideas. Um, and for me, right. thinking about the, I've been doing a lot of reading around decolonizing methodologies, it's not just about the, the people and the places and who matters and who's important, but like which ways of being and knowing we value. And in this case, it's Nick's father's very Western medicine way of knowing that's valued right like he gets to be this savior he gets to come in and rescue and his like scientific knowledge is what's important and all the other quiet ways of knowing um that uh belong to the indigenous folks in the story are completely unvalued yeah there's you're absolutely right I, I, the arc of this story shows um show you know Again, it's, it's not told in the first person, but you're more or less seeing things through the eyes of the, of the child, Nick, who I think is probably five, six or seven years old, just based on how he talks and thinks. Mm -hmm. And I, I also have two, two boys, and so I remember them at that age, and it does remind me of five, six, seven-year-old boys. And so he sees his father, if we can reveal some of the plot to readers who may not have 
our listeners who may not have read it yet, he sees his father conduct a cesarean section um, in, um, in the most impoverished of, of conditions. It's, uh, these, are, these are bark peelers. This is a bark peeling camp is how I understand it. So the logs are drawn out of the forest. There's then some very rough and dangerous work of, 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 of peeling the bark off logs before I assume they're then sent by some flotation across the bay or down a river. Um, so it's, it's the hardest work of logging that's done by the native people here. Um, Nick and his father enter this, what's called a shanty. And um, most of the men of the village have moved away because the woman's distress is so troubling. She's in a great, it's a breached birth. So she's not able to have the child. And um, my assumption is that she's, she's going to die unless something, if some kind of intervention happens, which probably is why they sent, or when somebody went for help from this doctor. Um, um, because you're, you're right that there's, there's a woman who's there tending to the, to the young woman who's, uh, who's pregnant. Um, she's exhausted. Her head is on its side. She's been in labor for days. Her husband is also in a state of like destitution because he's wounded himself through his work. So he's, um, his foot is cut or his leg is cut and he's, um, now disabled lying in the bunk above her. And so he can't escape her pain. He's trapped in his world in, uh, uh, of violence in so many different ways. So he's there and, um, and the doctor doesn't bring any anesthetic. So we're not really sure if he had anesthetic and could have brought it, but he doesn't bring it. And he, he conducts a cesarean section with a, with a jackknife and some rough thread. Um, and uh, I mean, there's, there's more that happens, but Nick witness, witnesses this all. Um, and on the other side of it, you know, he's heard his uncle use a racial slur towards the young woman um, who, who bites him, um, which is a very interesting moment in the story, um, a moment of resistance, you might say. It's one of the few times that a, that a woman in the story speaks or does something. Um, and she bites this man who's holding her down. Um, but Nick hears the uncle use a racial slur. He hears his father say that the woman's screams are not important. I just need to focus on my task. And, um, and, and so the father's, um, the, father's, uh, the father's bias and racism and insensitivity to the pains of the people he's working with are, are, are clear. The man in the bunk above, the father of this child, the husband of this woman, takes his own life over the course of this story. And, and the father by, at then is completely deflated. He sees the trauma to a degree through the eyes of his child. He's deflated and he wishes that he hadn't brought his son. But the last thought that the child has as he's crossing the lake is, um, or it's a thought that he doesn't have. He, he has a sense that he, would never, that he would never die. There's a sense of you are, you, are, you are in power. You are in a place of power from people with power of strength and invincibility. Nick has just experienced extraordinary violence and he's experienced death and he's experienced pain. And on the other side of it, he understands death as something that happens to other people. So there's all of that that comes with this story um, about a young white white boy and his um, his rite of passage into what into power. It's a rite of passage into power uh, and privilege. Um, it's a solidification of that. And um, again, I think the question uh, to ask of ourselves as educators is, what does that kid need? He's in our school right now. He's in your classrooms. That person with that power and that privilege is in our classrooms or he's in your own home, you know? What does that person need from our school? And then also what, 
what, do the, what does the other child need? Because the other child lives. And we also have that child. If it's, if it's a public school in Vermont, we also have that child in our school too. The child who's living in a camper, the child who's, 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 who's homeless, the child who's coming from, um, from great um, systemic poverty and the violence that comes with it. Both of those children are in our schools. What do they both need? Unless the doctor's son has actually left your school, because that happens. That's happened several times um, since I joined Randolph Union, actually. Already left your school for private school, is sort of what you're saying. That's what I'm saying, is that, is that um, the doctor's son and the doctor's family may have the choice of not being in your classroom. Yeah. So you're reminding me, I often, um, I teach collaborative practices and facilitative leadership, and um, we, which is focused on equity, using protocols and structures to have hard conversations, because these are hard conversations about um, equity, about bias, about the way assumption colors our teaching practice and how we see kids. And um, many times in Vermont, um, I will encounter teachers, educators, principals, administrators who will say, well, our school's all white, so we don't need to deal with race. And, um, and then I, I, I encourage them to read what white children need to know about race, um, which I'll link in the transcript, because I think the question you're asking is related to that, which is that, um, it's related to the question, what kind of white children do we want our kids to be? What kind of white folks do we want uh, our graduates to be in the world? And um, if we never talk about race, if we don't equip them with conversations about race, they can't develop a positive white social identity. Um, totally, totally agree with you there. And, um, and I've, I've tried to train myself to not ever say anymore that we're not a diverse school community, even though Randolph Union is 95% is um, students who identify as white. To say we're not diverse all in, in a phrase erases 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 children. So I can't say we're not a diverse school. I can say that we're a mostly white school, but I can't say we're not a diverse school. Yeah. I think we fall into a trap when um, we minimize or erase those students who, who do fall, you know, who may be biracial or may, um, and presenting white or may have more complicated ethnic backgrounds, but we also fall into a trap by thinking that white kids don't have a race. But what do we need to focus on? What, what are some of the things that come up? What does schooling need to provide for this um, sort of entitled, young man who thinks he's never going to die well i think i think nick needs to um nick needs to have an have a personal and historical understanding of himself and he needs to have a personal and historical understanding of of um of others and uh i'm i'm fond of saying as we as we approach complex topics in a school community that we we need personal personal stories and historical facts personal stories and historical facts personal stories and historical facts and if we have both of those in our classrooms at our assemblies in our professional development work we we have what it needs to have um to have truthful conversations um now i know we can certainly debate what counts as historical fact um but look, we're, we're educators and so we're academics to a degree. So we have, we're gonna default to what academia legitimizes as historical facts and we should. 
Um, but, but Nick needs to be in a classroom where he's enabled to reflect on his own personal story, where he's invited to reflect on this, this trip that he had as a five-year-old, where he's asked questions where he has to reflect on the society that he lives in, and where he's asked questions where he has to consider the perspective of other people. Um, and hopefully there's a, it's a classroom that's diverse by class, and it may also be diverse by race to a degree. And the teacher needs to carefully create a, um, a trusted and a trusting and bonded classroom community. And the teacher may need help to do that. But a bonded classroom community where personal stories can be shared. Um, so that's the classroom that gets personal. So Nick, Nick needs to be able to hear um, other people tell their stories and he needs to also be able to reflect on his own and, and, and to share it. Um, that's, that's one thing that he needs. And then he also needs a political historical understanding of, um, of where he, of where he comes from and the, and the society that he lives in. Um, can I poke at this notion of historical fact a little bit? Yeah. Um, I think you're right. I think a history or inaccurate history is a huge part of our problem in this country that we tell the stories we wish we were, we, um, that we wish were true of our American society. Um, and not just the like chopping down of cherry trees, never tell a lie kind of stories. And so yesterday, Nicole Hannah-Jones won the Pulitzer for her work on the 1619 Project, which was is wonderful because the 1619 Project really disrupted all of the history I learned as a, a student, right? By centering the experiences and not just the experiences, but the work of black people and the way uh, that black and brown people have really built this country and not just its buildings, not just through slavery, but like built our democracy and moved it forward. And so I think this idea of historical facts means we need to trouble the historical fictions we've been telling ourselves as if they're fact. I totally agree. And we're, um, we're, we're, we're fortunate to have, um, you know, <laughs> unending resources at our disposal to access um, those, um, those stories that are gonna, that are gonna trouble our fictions. Um, you know, if, if, if we're the Zen Education Project and um, the, the 1619 Project and uh, Facing History in Ourselves and Rethinking Schools and Teaching Tolerance, these are organizations that um, offer educators off the shelf resources and daily reminders if you're if we're clicked into their websites and their Twitter feeds about this day in history 200 years ago what was the experience of uh, of of people um, of, of working class people and people of color and immigrants um, they do center those stories and so the resources are there there's no excuse for not considering them as we plan our lessons and using them as we teach what I hear from you is that we have to do the work as educators and that we have to disrupt or challenge our own um, indoctrination into a certain kind of history and ask ourselves like whose story is being told, whose story isn't, how, what does power have to do with that and, and where do I go find those stories that haven't been told. Um, and I love the list of resources you provided. I'll make sure to put links to them in the transcript. The work is for all, like the work is for all of us at all levels, right? Like it's not just for young people. In many ways, we're Nick too. We are Nick too, absolutely. And so there's a quote, it's when um, 
it's before the cesarean section when Nick's father, the doctor, is getting ready to perform surgery. He's just explained that the birth is breech. And he says to his son, but her screams are not important. I don't hear them because they are not important. And thinking about the context of this conversation with you, I, I thought what the question I wanted to sort of poke at or interrogate my own practice with and thinking back on myself as an educator are, what are the things that I as an educator sometimes was not able to hear because I didn't consider them important? That's a great question, Jeannie. I think it's a great, I think this, this I'm wishing I would ask that kind of a question um, when reading this story. So you have here a, a doctor who feels like his primary task is to, is, to, is to get the child out of the belly of this woman and to do his best to save both of those lives in the process. And so if he's preoccupied by her emotional distress, then he's not gonna get his task done. That's one interpretation, right? In the broader context of this story, there's, there's, huge there's huge insensitivities and there's huge settler colonial racism that's playing out here. But the narrow view is you have a professional who's trying to get his, his job done. What are, what are the corollaries to our work as educators? You know, well, I've gotta, I gotta get these grades done. I think it's important for us to ask, what do we, what do we, what do we not listen to? What, what, what pains and, and cries of distress do we not listen to or do we shut out in our efforts in the institution that is school, in our efforts to, to stick to the routine, to get the task done, um, to tend to what we feel is urgent? Um, I think that's a really important question. Well, and in this current moment, here we are in the middle of COVID-19, and, um, you know, we know that this, this illness, um, which some people are falsely calling um, the great equalizer, impacts everyone, is really impacting people of color way more than it is um, uh, white folks. And um, how often, this is also true of childbirth, this is true of all medical problems actually for people of color, how often doctors are not able to um, count their pain as real right and i don't think doctors are evil people just like i don't think teachers get into the business of teaching to hurt kids i think what happens in these moments like with nick's dad is that we have work to be done and we fall back on implicit bias in a way that actually has huge impacts on our students on um, patients of color who are dying um, at a hugely disproportionate rate of COVID-19 or not being admitted to hospitals because their um, symptoms aren't being taken seriously. And I can't help but see these as intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need, we, we need professionals in every institution who, um, who look like, represent, and are from the same places of the people that are quote unquote being served. We need, we need we need a kind of we need a kind of diversity in our um, in in our in our positions of power so that we can better listen and better understand the work that that we're doing through different lenses. And it, I, I think it's not it's not just diversity because I don't think we can just uh, rely on people of color to do the work here. But when we hold um, 
power and privilege, we need to personally do the work of um, disrupting our own biases and, um, and drawing attention to them and noticing them because I think that our biases do show up in what we think is important and what we think is not important. And I can think of countless, actually white students, but white students who'd experienced some sort of um, trauma in their lives or who were coming from a family of abuse or um, poverty, who we couldn't see, we couldn't hear them because we didn't consider what they were going through important. And by that we, I meant me uh, and the teachers I was working with in um, my last school. I, I agree with you there. I also, but what I mean to say is, for instance, right now, if, if, it, was only, if it was only white men in leadership positions at my school, I would not be doing, we would not be doing a good, as good a job as leaders right now. Um, meeting the needs of our, our teachers who are young mothers or who are about to go and give childbirth. Yeah. Because, I have, I, because I have an associate principal who's a, who's a woman, so a woman in a position of power in my school, the school is doing a better job of working with women who, are, who are, have had children or are going to have children. And that is part of my learning is in listening to, um, listening to my colleague. And because we have a, a person in power at my school who was born and raised in the towns where we work and whose family's been there for six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations, she's at the table when we're deciding how to allocate resources. And so her voice matters because she understands the needs of the community in a different way than I do for all of my good intentions about putting myself in someone else's shoes. Um, so I agree, I agree with you that there's work to be done um, by me as an individual and I think part of the work to be done is in is in um, is in listening to listening to my colleagues who have different perspectives as well, and ensuring that my colleagues do represent different perspectives. Yeah, I don't think it's an either or. But I think both of those things are important. I agree. It's a both and for sure. So um, thanks for letting me diverge a little bit. Um, do we want to talk a little bit more about what our Knicks need as they enter, or do we want to begin to think about this new baby and um, what students like um, he will need as they from art from schooling? Um, I think we should talk about. Um, yeah, I think we should talk about. I think we should talk about the, the Native American child, um, the child from the other side of the lake or the other side of the tracks from where the doctor's son has grown up, and what they need from our school, and from and what the, and from the broader society. I think we should talk about what it means to be a teacher working with more and more students who um, who who are struggling with the society that we live in. Um, and how, how to support teachers in that work. Yeah, I love that. Can we talk a little bit about what that struggle looks like? So the, 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 the children born into the most desperate of circumstances seem to be um, more and more in number. So how can we support, how can I support my colleague? How can I support my, myself? Hence, all of the conversations we're having across the state about trauma-informed practice and secondary trauma and vicarious trauma. How do we ensure that the teacher core is strong in this work, working with, Nick's, Nick, working with Nick and working with um, 
many other children from different and more and more challenging circumstances. Um, and I, I guess what I've come to think, Jeannie, is that it's it's less about victories and thinking about each child as a potential victory. You know, each child has a chance to like help that kid beat the odds. It, and we need to continue with that kind of energy and activist educator effort to get every child um, to have the most fulfilling experience they can have in our school. But at the same time, that the goal may not be the individual victories. The goal is solidarity and the struggle. That reminds me, uh, I love everything you just said, and it reminds me of a story that I heard a speaker, and I can't even give credit to the speaker. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Paul Gorski, actually, at a school reform initiative winter meeting years ago. And the story was this. There are these um, folks on the side of, on the bank of a river, and these babies start coming down the river. And so they do what you do. They start grabbing babies out of the river, right? They're pulling one baby after another out of the river. And then one of them starts, like takes off. And they're like, wait, where are you going? There are all these babies, come back, help us. Why are you like giving up on these babies? And they're like, I'm going up river to see where all these babies are coming from, right? And so it's moving from this triage um, to a systems level change. And I think in schools, I think, I think it can be really easy. I know it was really easy for me to think of myself as somebody who could help save kids, right? One at a time, relationship by relationship. And I don't, I think relationships are so crucial and important and work with kids is really important. But I think I had some blinders on and thinking that I could save anybody. That my work was somehow to save these kids. My boss, John Downs, often asks me to think with a systems level lens, and it does not come naturally to me. I have to work really hard to think about the systems change. And I, I've been thinking about, um, I went and saw Ibram Kendi when he came to UVM this past winter, and it was so profound. And he's really asking us to think about racism at the systems level. The outcomes, right, like that, um, that uh, a racist idea le leads to racist outcomes. And it's really thinking about policies and procedures. And that's really helped me think about this too. But like, if we're dealing with one baby at a time, we're not upending the system at all that creates all the, that puts all these babies in the river in the first place. So it's very easy to focus year, year after year on the, on the small number of kids who beat the odds and think that that's actually what schools can do. Whereas really we are, we're, we're best at recreating the inequities that our society, you know, of, of, the, of the wider society. I just feel really the need to say like I so admire the work schools do and that educators play like I think educators are working their tails off and that um, the society has given them way too much to do and I sometimes wonder if, if that's a huge part of the problem where if you're just trying to keep up you're not gonna look around and say hey what's going on in the greater world that our students are showing up like this right like it makes it really hard to like sort of see the big picture if you're just wallowing in the work we have to do day to day and we're expecting schools to feed kids and to provide medical attention for kids and to like, there's so many things that schools are doing. And so I don't wanna lose sight of the fact that I think educators, not only are their intentions good, but they're working so hard and their hearts are in this work. Yeah, I'm nodding, I agree. Yeah, you can't hear a nod on a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, 
I, I also want to say just in terms of giving credit where credit is due that um, that when, when I when I hear myself say uh, that that that's that that solidarity in the struggle and maintaining the struggle is is the essence of the work that um, that that well, what I, the, the, that I'm hearing James Baldwin and I'm hearing Tani C. Coates in Between the World and Me. I'm, you know, I'm hearing a man who's named his child after the, the word for the struggle and give that message to his child. Um, and so I, I, I want to credit those authors for, yeah. uh, for educating me and helping me see the world in some different ways um, and giving me some of the language to describe my world. Um, Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, in, in terms of the, in terms of the work at, uh, at, at Randolph, what, you know, my, 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 mo my mantra when we try to think about how to, how to write curriculum that has relevance and is engaging to students and the wider community is that, is to don't start, don't start with the notion of interest. A lot of, a lot of us as educators will think, well, I just want to, I want to engage the kids and what they're interested in. Um, Joey, what are you interested in? What do you like? <laughs> you know, like. I think that's a reasonable question. Um, it's an important question. We need to engage and know our children in terms of their interests. But, but I think the, the more important question is what are your needs? What do you need? What are your family, fam, what does your family need? And what does our community need? And if we, if we can ask ourselves that question, then, and, and design our curriculum around those questions, personal needs and societal needs and community needs, we will be doing the work uh, that we will we will be much more likely to do work that is about um, that that engages people in personal reflection and knowing yourself, and also will be will be better positioned to do to do the systems change work and, and enabling kids to to take action in their communities in those ways. Um, so the past couple of years we've had um, we've had what we call the project based learning lab at at, at Randolph Union which we staff with, with an administrator who supports teachers in designing courses that are, um, that are, that are, that are project-based in that they're oriented towards, towards addressing some, um, some need in the, in the community. Um, so we've had courses that are focused on racial justice and restorative justice, um, climate change and economic injustice, food insecurity and food systems. Um, and we've also taken some of our, um, extracurricular initiative this is something schools can do like plan for it for next year like do this next year take something that's in the extracurricular realm and it gets maybe an hour every couple of weeks make it a class um, some can you give us an example yeah if you have a service club at your school um, we had a, we've had an interact club at Randolph Union for for years and so when the project based learning lab opened up, we, we, we talked to Scott, the teacher who's um, helped do that work, whether it's blood drives or whether it's um, supporting the education of girls in Asia, um, whether it's work with veterans who are homeless, lots of different local and international initiatives connected with the Rotary Club in town. Scott, why don't you make that a class? So instead of an hour every couple of weeks with the kids who can make it after school, give it give it 220 minutes a week and let's see how deep we can go in terms of understanding the work that we're asking kids to do. In practice, we, we, we partnered with an organization uh, in, in Montpelier who works with, um, with, with kids and educators in schools in Nicaragua and, and just your understanding of the world we live in can go so much deeper. And so instead of 
just being a tourist, you're actually doing um, homestays and you're learning in much different ways about the culture that you're, that you're visiting. Um, so those are some things that, that we can do is like take, take initiatives that people are passionate about in terms of um, working with their local and international communities and make it a course and, and provide some resources to help teachers pull that, pull that off. Um, those are a couple of examples. It sounds to me like what that also does is uh, make space for both the needs of Nick and for the baby in our story, right? Like that it's making space for Nick to question, um, to, to question the truths, the, the, the learning that he's had about, uh, that, that, that's led to some entitlement in the sense that um, what he's bringing. And also for this child who maybe couldn't afford an international trip or maybe couldn't stay after school because they have to help out at home, to sort of both engage together in the dialogue and the learning, but also in the travel or in the experience of service. Like oftentimes we limit who, who gets to be a volunteer and serve to, to privileged um, kids with privilege. And yet everybody feels the need to serve and, and um, have an impact. And so I'm just thinking about that and how do you create curriculum that meets the needs of um, kids whose, whose experience spans a broad continuum? Nick is in a classroom with people who have different life experiences. And again, the classroom is, is, is the classroom community is developed intentionally enough so that Nick feels vulnerable enough to, to say something and then be questioned. And that the people who can question him feel like they have the support to question him or the teacher can do, you know, we need, we need those classroom communities with the norms um, for personal discussion and, and political discussion and debate. Um, to, to be established and that's hard to do you know because if you're if you're doing if you're doing if you're talking about personal things in the right way you're going to be having political discussions once once a story that's personal and maybe shame laden um comes out of the closet and is shared you start to see that you're not alone in your struggle right james baldwin wrote that literature can also do that you can start to see that you're not alone with your with your pain. In fact, the pain that you're struggling with is the only thing that really makes you human in the first place, that you can share that experience with other people. And so what that means is that we have common stories and our common stories are shaped by common circumstance. And our common circumstances, social, economic, political, historical, are shaped by public policy. And so all of a sudden your personal story about your about your mom who's struggling with several generations of poverty, who can't, who's not making a living wage, who can't pay the rent, and who maybe is tending towards struggles with addiction. All of that has a public policy context. There are regulations about opiates that influence how many opiates are in our communities. There are minimum wage laws that haven't changed for, you know, like on and on and on, you all of a sudden can see a personal struggle in a political context. That's something that, um, that often I think our teacher core is not supported enough to do and is not supported in their training to do. And that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of work to be done by educators and the educators of educators um, to help us be able to approach this work carefully and intentionally. 
I, I hear two themes um, and one, and I was going to ask you, and then you sort of went there is like, how do we prepare teachers? How do we prepare ourselves as educators to hold space for brave and hard conversations? And that feels really important. And I, I don't think that we should expect teachers to do that without focusing on that in our professional development and giving them space to learn and even to be in spaces like that in the first place. And Absolutely. And um, I think that's a lot of the work I do with collaborative practices is, is creating, um, building relationships and communities that can allow us to poke at, in a very public way, um, our, our own biases and assumptions that we're bringing so that we can better serve all of our students. Um, the other thing I'm hearing from you, and I thought a lot about this as I was reading um, the story Indian Camp, is that um, this story, um, describes the, the, the shanty, I think is the language it uses, and the lives of Native people completely out of context of colonization and genocide. And I think, um, I think that as a teacher in my past, I have also seen students um, without the context of the way policy um, has has shaped their lived experience, right? And so, and I see this in the news, and I see this in our political setting, and I see this in, in the way policies are shaped all the time, in the way in which we want to think that slavery is over and doesn't matter anymore, um, or that um, uh, that a, a people, any people, have done this to themselves, right? And so whether it's when we want to donate to Africa for poverty and we're not able to see how colonization has led to the very poverty we think we can fix with a concert and some dollars, or, um, or whether it's in our own communities and the way, um, you know, the way that some folks are judged for choices they make. Anyway. It was not very articulate, but I, I think about that a lot. I think a lot about, and it comes back to what you talked about earlier about historical facts. Ruha Benjamin talks a lot about this and about um, the importance of getting past a history and, and talking about things like redlining. So I guess I don't know that you're going to have the answer to this, but what professional development should we be? I'm a, my title is professional development coordinator. Uh, my work is systems change, um, where it's supposed to be. <laughs> what PD should I be designing or should I be engaging in myself to begin to hold, to help teachers do these two things that I've heard you say? And one is be able to have these brave conversations um, and, to and not just to hold them, but to have facilitate them in their classrooms. And two, to um, sort of um, learn about and then teach about these um, historical contexts and political contexts that shape our experience of the world. Mm -hmm. um, we need to understand that, 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 that if we want people to understand how to create um, uh, spaces for courageous conversations in their classrooms, they're going to need modeling and experience of that because they may not have gotten it. They probably didn't get it in some of their own high school experience or in their own teacher training experience. So they're gonna to need to get it in your faculty meeting experience. Um, so part of it about allocating resources so that we have time and space in our school year, in our months of the school year, um, 
to, to have those conversations, to have them modeled, and so that people can become strong facilitators themselves. We learn by modeling. So it's important that there be a, a strong core of facilitators in the school, not just administrators, especially not just administrators, but teacher leaders and others who can, can quote unquote, hold the space. And, um, and then there need to be conversations about that, 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 are, that are personal and political um, at the level of faculty. And then we'll, we'll learn how to do those um, in, in the classroom. I don't know, that's, that's important. Um, and I think we need to share the models that work. Every school has teachers who are doing this work already. You know, I'm a pretty firm believer that most communities have the resources they need to solve their own problems. And those resources are usually human resources. And so if we can help, you know, there's that classroom over here where there's a fabulous Socratic seminar happening and the kids are speaking from the heart about complex topics that are both personal and have public policy implications. Let's figure out how to get that teacher's work spread across the school. Um, looking internally for the for the resources that are there is also um, a really important strategy and then modeling it of course in um, you know that's one of the reasons why I, I we never have enough time to even we never have this much time you know that you and I have here today um, to talk about this this story the implications um, up for our work in the way that we are um, but one of the reasons why I, I choose to read this with um, administrators in training or teachers in training or teachers who are new to my school, no matter where they are in their professional career, is I just want to model that we can have conversations about these topics. And I want to model my own vulnerabilities um, and my own mistakes and, my own, and, the, and the risks that I'm taking and how I think, you know, in some ways it's a bad idea for me to read this story with you because I don't know you very well yet. And here I am, a white man, reading this story by another white man about people who are very different from me. And um, I want to be able to talk about that with my colleagues um, right, to, and to make a first impression. We do this with our new teachers every year. Um, so there's modeling as well as, um, as creating the space for people to, to have the conversations. Well, I appreciate that you uh, read this story or had me read this story and have a conversation with it about it because um, I would not have chosen this story. <laughs> I would not have, and even the name when you sent it, I was like, huh, do I want to read this? And then reading it. And I'm currently rereading one of my very favorite books in the whole wide world. Uh, I'm rereading it because I just turned in all my work for the semester and I have this opportunity to like sink into a book I love and it's called, um, the Marrow Thieves, have you heard of it? No, I haven't heard of it, Jeannie. Oh, it's by Cherie Demoline, and she's a First Nations woman, Canadian, and, um, oh gosh, I wish I could just send you a copy right now. It's like my, it just like speaks to my heart, and um, I'm rereading it with these new eyes from a semester focusing on reading decolonizing methodologies, and um, it's uh, dystopic, which does not sound like a fun thing to read right now. And actually, it's very relevant in this in this current moment. It's a story of. Um, are you really interested in this? We'll probably cut it out. <laughs> it's a story of. Um, it's uh, post climate change, right? The like California has like fallen into the ocean, and white people have stopped being able to dream, and um, and what they found is that that indigenous folks still can. Mm. And they, so they, they look back at history and they start using the modes of residential schooling as a way to sort of round up um, Native people and extract their bone marrow 
so that they can dream. And so um, that all sounds wretched, and it truly is. Um, but what happens in the story is um, our main character, Frenchie, um, gets separated from his family, and he's on his own, and he runs into this uh, group, ragtag group of other Native folks, all generations, different backgrounds, different tribes, I guess, if you will, or ethnic identities, and they sort of exist on foot. Um, traveling, hunting, you know, just surviving. But the book is really about community and healing and um, uh, other ways of knowing and ancestral wisdom. And it, it's so beautiful. I just can't say enough about it. But I, I thought about it a lot in relation to this. I think they would have an interesting conversation. And one of the conversations we didn't get into that I'm really interested in is the ways in which we've confined ways of knowing and being brilliant and smart and extraordinary into such narrow categories. And what would it look like if we really, um, if schools really allowed a diversity of ways of knowing and being and flourishing and being brilliant? Because every kid I've known has been brilliant in some way. It's just that we only count a few kinds of brilliant. And so right. uh, yeah. I heard yeah. that in you in the focus on interest and I wanted to plumb that more, but I know you have to go take care of your puppy. But if there's anything you want to add. No, I just think that that's, that's something where I, I think this story can and should take us. If, if, Nick's, if Nick is only knowing the world the way his father is knowing the world, what is he missing? He's, he's missing the universes. And so the story needs to take us in that direction. It needs to take us to the Marrow Thieves and to an indigenous people's history of the United States. It needs to take us in other directions. We can't just think, oh yeah, Nick's going to be okay because... Yeah, he'll be fine. Let's focus on like how we can save someone else in this story. It's like, if Nick leaves your school only knowing what he knows now and only understanding his father's perspective on the world, we haven't done our job as a public school in, in, this, in this country. Well, because Nick's likely to become our congressperson, right? Or our president or the CEO of our company and reproduce the same, the same systems that lead to very narrow ways of knowing. Yeah, or your school principal. <laughs> or your professional development coordinator. <laughs> your school librarian. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel like it's, uh, there's some, it's, there, it's just like a, it's not a backdoor into discussions about whiteness and race and privilege, but it's, it's a convenient door into those discussions, especially I think with, um, with 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 white educators so anyway well i feel yeah. really lucky to have had this long conversation with you it's not yeah, like same. we're standing in line for food at a conference it's like a real conversation i'm Jeannie phillips and this has been an episode of vermont ed reads talking about what vermont's educators and students are reading thank you to elijah hawks for appearing on the show and talking with me about Indian Camp. If you're looking for a copy of Indian Camp, check with your local library. We are always grateful to Audrey Hillman for all she does to get this podcast to you. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit btedreads.tennisinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at btedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tennis Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.